Well, I'd like to welcome you, O future teachers of mindfulness meditation. I'm Tara Brock. And I'm Jack Cornfield. Warm greetings to you. To support you in your training, we've created a special podcast series of the best wisdom teachings from previous years of our teacher training. Now, we know that sometimes simply listening and not having to watch a screen is a really good way to open, receive, and learn. The wisdom you'll hear is timeless, so while you may hear references to time, you'll easily connect with the truths that are being shared. May this rich selection of some of our favorite training sessions deepen your understanding of mindfulness and compassion and bring a new dimension to your teaching. We hope you enjoy these special recordings. Many blessings. All right, everybody. Once again, welcome, welcome to our Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Certification Program broadcast. My name is Christy Peoples. I am a producer here at Sounds True, and I'm thrilled to be your host. Once again, we're going to have time for questions during the second half of our session today. And to submit your questions, you're going to want to use the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen. Be sure to upvote your favorites as well. Today, we are extremely grateful to have Sebene Selassie joining us for this special broadcast. She's coming to us from Brooklyn, New York, and she's going to be speaking about the importance of self-meta as teachers. And so the title of her talk is No Part Left Out, The Meta of Belonging. Sebene teaches classes and retreats regularly across the US and she's a meditation teacher on the 10% Happier app. She is also author of the book, You Belong, A Call for Connection. Sebene, thank you so much for being with us today. And I love that we have on the same color top. Thank you, Christy. We did not plan this, but I was saying maybe we should do a a, a little choreography or something later. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And my earrings match your walls. Just saying. We're we're so together. (laughs) Thank you, Christy. It's great to see you again. And thank you, everyone. It sounds true. And Matt and Alicia and Jen behind the scenes. It's really an honor to be here uh, today with all of you. And to share about this important teaching of metta or loving kindness, I want to thank Tara and Jack for inviting me to share on this topic. Um, As some of you may know, I was a mentor in the last iteration of the MMTCP training. So I know how powerful this training is. And as a practitioner and as a teacher, I know how powerful this teaching is. And really, you could spend a year exploring just metta and it would be worth it. That's how important this quality is in the cultivation of mindfulness. And mindfulness and metta really go hand in hand. Um, we could say that you know metta is really the other side of the coin, so to speak. And in the classical teachings, it said that mindfulness and metta always co-arise, that you can't have one without the other. So if mindfulness is this capacity to witness what's happening with clarity, you know, we cultivate this capacity to see clearly what's happening. Metta is our 
our capacity to meet what's happening with kindness. And, you know, we won't have time to really get into this, but just a caveat that sometimes what's most kind is, is strong or even fierce. It's not that metta is weak, but it is caring. And, you know, I, I often experience mindfulness at its fundamental level as this quality of curiosity. You know, if I can be curious about my experience, then I can at least start to build the foundation to see clearly. And metta at its most fundamental level is this capacity to care. So if we, if we can care about what's happening, then perhaps I can cultivate this, this quality of, of loving kindness. And as teachers and practicing and embodying these two qualities of mindfulness and metta, it's, it's so important for creating really what I consider to be a culture of belonging for our students and our communities and really our world. I was thinking of it, um, you know, metta is really like the warmth in the power of the sun. And without, without it, mindfulness is like shining a flashlight on something. So we could maybe see it, but we can't really nourish or grow anything with just the light of a flashlight. And we really need the warmth and power of the, of the warm sunlight um, to nurture these qualities. So... Uh, I know you'll be exploring how to experience and teach metta as a formal practice and that Jack and Tara, um, you know, in their, their uh, talks for these units really started to touch into that. Um, but I'm going to explore metta more as a personal exploration of, uh, as Christy mentioned in the title, what might get left out in our exploration of metta. Is it, it really um, is this process of being able to bring our full selves to our teaching, to the teaching seat uh, that will make it possible for us to care for others. So we can't care for parts of ourselves. If we leave parts of ourselves out of this practice of metta, then it'll be really hard for us to, to see and, and to really care for, for the parts of our students that may be challenging or need the warmth of um, metta for repair and for reconnection. So as I teach today, I'm going to be transparent as I speak and um, sometimes sort of explore what I'm doing as I do it, as I'm doing right now. So I'm kind of, as they say in theater, kind of breaking the fourth wall, giving you little pedagogical explanations. And sometimes I'm going to be speaking to you as practitioners, and sometimes I'm going to speak to you as teachers. And from time to time, I'll let you know which is which, because it's really important um, as we take the seat of a teacher to, to know what's important to share, how we practice with metta uh, as teachers and how we practice with it as students. But I wanna begin um, the way I've been starting most of my teachings lately with three honorings. And uh, I'm gonna take a little time with this because I really believe that these three honorings are actually part of my metta practice that they help me get grounded and remember my intentions and help me situate into right relationship with what I'm offering. And so for me, they're really an expression of the quality of care and kindness. Um, these three honorings of native land, of honoring the Asian lineages and honoring ancestors. 
are for me really a care for place and a care for these teachings and a care for myself and whomever I'm, I'm teaching or I'm gathering with. And I think of these three as really rememberings, honorings or rememberings. I kind of use those words interchangeably. And as you may know, sati, the word we translated, or let's say the Victorians translated as mindfulness, which is maybe not the best translation because it makes us think it's all about the mind or the brain. Sati has the etymology of uh, remembering this connotation of uh, awareness that we're bringing to our experience. And for me, that really speaks to the attunement to the moment that it, it's really bringing us into remembering, you know, where we are and who we are and our true nature ultimately. And so I offer this, these three honorings to you, not because this is how you should do it. Um, you're not here to teach, to learn to teach like me or to become like Tara or Jack. Um, there are many, many ways to begin a session. And as Jack mentioned in his talk for this unit, you know, you want to begin with what brings you into a quality of presence that really embodies what you're teaching. So whether that's a story or a poem or a, a short reflection or these honorings or, you know, something else, it's really uh, to, to really practice embody um, this, this clarity and this kindness or this, this awareness and this care. So I always start with honoring native land. It's also known as land acknowledgement. And it's a short statement to acknowledge or long, doesn't matter, actually it doesn't have to be short, <laughs> but it can be a short statement to acknowledge that uh, we're always on ancestral lands of indigenous people, wherever we may be. And we might be those people and for me, land acknowledgement really helps me ground where I am. You know, it really helps me begin a teaching with my feet firmly planted with a connection to a place. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with it, this is a practice that's done in mostly in settler colonial states, places where indigenous people were forcibly removed or often genocided. And it's more established as a practice in Canada and Australia and New Zealand, for those of you who are calling in from those places where it's done in schools and at sports games and political events. And um, it, it can be a perfunctory statement and something that just people kind of, you know, go through officially, but not really connect to. But it can also be a really beautiful practice, again, to connect us with care to wherever we are. And, you know, even if you're not in a settler colonial country, connecting to land is a powerful practice. And it, it is part of wisdom traditions around the world. And gatherings often begin with a connection to land. And I think it's appropriate this day after Earth Day to remember that fundamental connection as earthly beings, you know, especially in this time of climate catastrophe, it's, as it said, there's no planet B that we have this responsibility to land in place. And all of us uh, have a responsibility if we are really taking on the role of these teachings seriously and with, you know, sincerity and integrity to start to uh, participate in the healing of this um, probably biggest challenge we face. And it's a crisis that connects to so many of our other challenges. 
and so many other uh, injustices. But climate justice is really about healing that exploitation of Earth and their beings, you know, which has happened almost everywhere on our planet, that systems of oppression are fundamentally about the exploitation of land. And so Africans were enslaved for the express purpose to exploit land. Colonization and slavery are about the theft of land and resources. And, you know, the extractive capitalism that we're all a part of, it doesn't care that we're poisoning the planet. So land acknowledgement becomes, you know, this really powerful way that we start to heal these harms. And it's not reparations because it can't solve the problems, but it starts to, again, allow us to connect to this quality of care if it's done with awareness. So I will just quickly name that I'm on the unceded territory of the Lenape peoples, uh, also known as Brooklyn, New York, and that the Lenape stewarded the land that we now know as New York City, as well as parts of the Hudson Valley and New Jersey and Delaware and Pennsylvania for thousands of years. And that when we connect to indigenous wisdom, indigenous cosmogony and cosmology, it starts to reorient us to new ways of being in relationship. So I'm gonna invite you to just to take a moment in silence to feel the land underneath your feet or seat. You don't need to feel anything special, just simply knowing where you are and connecting to this great earth as a living being and as part of us. Okay, and this second honoring of Asian lineages, I think it's so profound and powerful for us to remember that these teachings did not pop out of uh, neuroscience or the modern mindfulness movement, but are uh, rooted in these Buddhist lineages. And just as land cannot truly be owned, mindfulness as a capacity does not belong to any one tradition or lineage, but mindfulness that's being expressed today in so many places around the world, as we see through this training, people from everywhere, does have its origins in uh, particular cultures and communities and in this time of continuing violence towards Asian American, Asian and Pacific Islander people, not just in the US and Canada, but really around the world, um, as well as the you know, continued effects of imperialism and colonization that have affected these countries, that it can be really harmful um, when we have kind of an extractive relationship to these teachings that don't acknowledge their origin. So honoring Asian lineages for me starts to begin to offer repair for that. And it really connects me to um, a lineage that uh, allows me to feel that sense of care for uh, the great honor it is to carry these teachings forward and share them. You know, I am um, a Taiwanese uh, American scholar and uh, Buddhist teacher, Funi Shu. She says that the exclusion of Asian and Asian American Buddhists from conversations about these teachings is a cultural appropriation. And, you know, part of 
uh, repairing that harm can be honoring lineage. So I'll just name that my uh, lineage is really connected primarily to the Thai forest tradition. And most of my teachers studied with the great Thai forest master Ajahn Chah. And so I feel uh, a deep appreciation connection, particularly to that lineage and thankful for that and those teachings. And finally, to honoring ancestors, you know, every culture on the planet from ancient Egyptians and Greeks to Celtic and Gaelic cultures to the indigenous traditions of literally every continent have some sort of ancestor relationship practice, including all the Buddhist traditions. And this can, you know, be uncomfortable for some people because they don't really have a connection to this type of practice. Uh, but it really is just an opportunity to name that we all have ancestors, that um, race and whiteness is not an ancestor, um, that we're here because our ancestors survived through their cultures and rituals and connections, that all our ancestors experienced suffering and all our ancestors caused suffering to some degree. And we're here because our ancestors were resilient, that they survived pandemics and difficulties long enough for us to be here and having the courage to face the totality of our ancestral heritage is also a way of caring. Um, you know, sometimes I, when I'm teaching, especially if I'm a little nervous, I, which I often am, I, I imagine my ancestors behind me, you know, offering care and support. It's like this support of metta at my back. So that's um, often how I begin a teaching, again, now peeking behind from the fourth wall. And, you know, that took quite a little time today. So I was really taking time also to orient and explain a little bit about it. And um, if you're interested in these honorings, I talk about them in chapter six um, of my book. I don't know if you're reading that chapter for this program, but uh, I do give like a little more background on them. But again, you know, there, there's a way that this quality of care and kindness um, takes time and effort. You know, it, it doesn't simply arise because we're nice people and we like these teachings. You know, like mindfulness, it really needs to be cultivated and tended to. And we really so need these qualities right now. You know, we need um, this attention to what's happening in our world you know, to kind of be going along with the cliches that have been uttered many times over this past year. We live in unprecedented, challenging times. And so bringing this kind of quality and care to understanding this moment and what got us here in all its permutations, and that's uh, showing up in different ways in different parts of the world. Um, but for all of us in terms of this pandemic, Metta is such an important quality to bring forward. So uh, as Christy mentioned, uh, I titled this talk, No Part Left Out, The Meta of Belonging. And um, I, I often title my talks, even if I, I, I'm the only one who knows it has a name, uh, 
So they they actually, um, Christine, the others had asked me if there was a title, uh, but I, I had already titled it, even though I didn't know they were going to ask me that, because for me, it helps me kind of stick to the main theme I want to impart. Um, and this, this theme of no part left out is actually a reference to a poem uh, by Izumi Shikubu, who was a 10th century Japanese poet. She's considered one of the greatest poets of that period. And this poem um, to me is, is really a poem about self-metta. So it goes, watching the moon at dawn, solitary mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. Watching the moon at dawn, solitary mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. So it can be helpful to know that the moon in Japanese poetry often uh, symbolizes illuminated awareness or awakening. You know, it's a symbol of what is whole and integrated, that everything is included. And in this type of awareness of mindfulness, nothing is excluded, no part left out. So this is really the theme I'd like to explore for the rest of our time together. And what does it mean, no part left out? What does that mean for us as practitioners? And what does that mean for us as teachers? Because if we're leaving parts of ourselves out, consciously or unconsciously, we probably are unknowingly leaving out parts of our students. When I co-teach with my friend, Brian Lesage, um, he always likes to begin with what he calls a deep welcome. And I always experience it as um, an expression of metta from him. And, and what he usually says is that, you know, often when someone says welcome, we don't necessarily hear it as a deep welcome. We might not be sure if all of the parts of ourselves are welcome when someone says welcome into, you know, a practice space or a class or a community. And so he goes through a list of what might not feel welcome and offers the invitation for all those parts to show up. So our racial identities, ethnicities, our gender, our sexuality, our differing abilities, our sadness, our anger, our confusion, our doubts, our joy, our passions, our biases and prejudices, our regrets, our tears, our laughter, our triumphs. So we can't offer a deep welcome to others if we don't offer a deep welcome to ourselves. So in that list, you know, you might want to consider what parts of yourself that you've kept out of your practice. And I'm speaking to you as practitioners now. You can't offer metta or kindness to those parts if you can't bring them in, if you can't see them. So I want to do a little reflection right now. So you can take a moment to, you know, take your eyes away from the screen if you're looking at me. And perhaps take a deep breath in and out. And just take a moment to connect to the body or breath. 
letting all the words or thoughts I've said so far settle. Just consider if there are parts of yourself that would benefit from a deep welcome in your practice as a student of metta. Is there a part of yourself that you don't bring into your practice, into practice spaces or practice communities? A part of yourself that needs your caring attention. Perhaps you can place a hand on your chest or somewhere else that feels comforting or supportive or just continue to consider this aspect of yourself that you usually don't welcome in. You can offer this part a phrase or a word, something of comfort, like I welcome you or I care for you. Just knowing that you can welcome in parts of yourselves into your practice and welcoming, especially previously unwelcomed or unacknowledged parts of yourselves is extremely healing. And it can also be very tender. And this is where metta and compassion meet. That metta is actually the foundation for compassion Sometimes we conflate them. We can think they're the same thing. They're both expressions of an awakened heart, but they're not quite exactly the same. Because metta is really the foundation for any expression of an awakened heart. This capacity to care, you know, to meet experiences life, um, experiences in life that present themselves to you, and to respond with um, an aware, awake heart. And whether that response is joy or equanimity or compassion, that the caring quality of metta is what allows for that. And compassion as this expression with metta at the foundation is especially important as teachers because so many come to practice because of suffering. You know, I did, I know I was going through a lot of suffering. That's why I came to practice. That's why I kept coming back to practice. And if we can't meet ourselves with care and compassion, it, it's very hard for us to meet others. And we need to cultivate this heart that cares in order to respond to suffering with compassion.
I know Tara offered a lot of beautiful context and the powerful practice of RAIN to work with self-compassion. I've come back to that practice over and over in my life, and it's been so key. And metta and compassion go hand in hand in like this. They're really intertwined because when we start caring for ourselves, when suffering arises, then compassion becomes the natural response if we've developed this quality of metta. And I really, um, you know, recommend this this practice of rain. Um, it can feel uh, some people love it. It can feel rote for some. I practiced it formally for years on retreat, and I actually remember the exact moment it kicked in as an automatic response. I was, um, you know, I'd really practiced it on retreats and in classes. I learned it first from Tara. And I was riding my bike um, in Brooklyn and I was actually going to lead a sit. And um, I was having a a lot of difficulty with a particular friend at that time. And I was going over and over in my head and I was really upset. And I stopped. I remember exactly where I was. I was on the corner of Bergen and Smith Streets. And I pulled over and I stood there on the sidewalk and I just took this moment to like feel what was happening, just sensing and allowing things to be there. And I wasn't going through the formal steps, but after a few moments, I realized I was like, oh, wow, I'm doing rain. Like I realized that it was just an automatic response. I was so pleased with myself. I think I forgot about like whatever the problem was for a little while. (laughs) So whether it's a formal rain practice, you know, it's this um, simple movement of caring for our pain, but we have to cultivate that quality of care in the same way that if we cultivate that quality of care, when there's something wonderful happening, we respond with delight. You know, we have that quality of presence and metta is the foundation for that. And we can bring this quality of presence and awareness to ourselves that we habitually push away or even hide from ourselves. And over time, we're able to actually do that for students, for things that you know we might normally turn away from in ourselves or able to more readily be avail- available for, for others because we've practiced with ourselves. I'll, t- I, I'll tell you another quick story. Um, one time I was on retreat at Seven Oaks, for those of you who remember when INCW retreats were mostly at Seven Oaks. And I, I, I don't know, I missed up, messed up the interview schedule and I missed my meeting with Tara. And I like went into a shame spiral about it. I was like, I can't believe I messed it up. You know, retreat kind of heightens our like sensitivities and our senses. And uh, I, was, I was a mess. And then I was standing in the food line and Tara came up to me and she, she knew like she, <laughs> because she probably witnessed in herself. She was like, don't blame yourself. Don't go into shame spirals. Like already been there. Don't, don't even bother. (laughs) But I so appreciated that she could bring that quality of kindness and compassion because she had probably developed that quality of care towards herself. She had experienced the shame spirals. And so we really need to practice this for ourselves so that we can bring it um, into our teachings. And I'm going to speak to you as teachers now that um, welcoming these parts into practice isn't always the same as what we bring to our role as teachers. I'm sure you've witnessed Tara and Jack and other teachers, and as I'm doing now, people sharing parts of themselves to kind of embody how we bring metta to our experiences. 
you know, we, we use ourselves as examples, and this is a really powerful teaching tool. But no part left out does not mean we show up with all our unsolved trauma on display. That's not helpful. And I like the invitation um, from the, uh, I think she's Lutheran minister, Nadia Bolds Weber. She says that she teaches from scars, not wounds. I love that, you know, very visceral, somewhat icky metaphor that it really gets the point across that if something is, you know, recently scabbed over or an open wound, it's probably best to leave it alone and give it time to heal and to tend to it on your own. That if you kind of pick at it by offering it up as a teaching, it might ooze and bleed and, uh, you know, maybe even infect others to keep going with that metaphor. But scars, scars are great. You know, I, I used to dislike my scars, my scars from childhood, my cancer scars. I saw them, you know, as imperfections or blemishes. Um, and I have a lot of scars in my body from surgeries and uh, from all sorts of treatments. And I really honor them now as uh, these um really powerful experiences that allow me to bring that care and kindness and compassion to my teaching. But it took me years to talk about my cancer experience in teaching. You know, I never hid the fact that I had cancer. I, you know, I, I might mention it when I was teaching, but I couldn't really talk about it, especially just, you know, a few years after I had finished my treatments. There was a lot of physical and emotional trauma that I had to process through my own practice and through psychotherapy and body work and somatic therapies. And it took a lot of awareness and kindness to allow myself time to compost it and to really let those wounds heal into a scar. And so for each of us, we really need to understand what that is. You know, what are scars and what are wounds and what we want to share in our teachings and what not. Uh, you know, kind of another maybe less intense example is my nervousness around public speaking. And this was a big one for me because I used to be terrified of public speaking, like not a great quality for a Dharma teacher. You know, it was like definitely a wound, something I couldn't, you know, talk about in the moment. I would just freeze up and there were times when I had to introduce teachers or, um, you know, give openings. I wasn't teaching yet even. And I, sometimes I would do such a terrible job that people would come up to me afterwards and commiserate, you know, it was really obvious. It's like not easy and not pretty, but, you know, I really started to work with this and bring some kindness and compassion to it. And, um, really take a lot of deep breaths and honor what I was feeling. And I started also to learn more about this particular anxiety and, you know, learned it's so common that kind of, um, we know that now that it's the biggest fear even before death, which is, you know, really un almost unbelievable. Like death, death is less scary than speaking in front of people, but, you know, great actors have this fear, leaders and, it really um, required me to bring this quality of care and attention, you know, that I would connect to my intentions and really start to see that those that nervousness is a sign that I cared. 
that it was often about wanting to do well and to offer something of value. And if I could really care for it, it wouldn't necessarily make it disappear, but it really allowed me to um, turn it into a, a scar, not a wound. So let's do another short reflection. Um, you might want to again, take your eyes away from the screen if you're looking at a screen just take another deep breath in and out. Just connect to the body and breath. And reflect on what's something that might be a wound for you that's too fresh to share as a story or an anecdote when you teach. Perhaps it's related to the earlier reflection, something that you leave out, a part of yourself. Maybe it's something else that needs more healing and attention from you as a practitioner. Again, you can place a hand on the body or offer a phrase or a gesture, knowing that you can take time in the future to tend to this wound. knowing you can come back to this, just reflect for one more moment on something that might be a scar. Something that is healed and could be shared as a reflection or a story about self-metta, about caring and kindness. Perhaps something related to what brought you to practice in the first place. or something that this practice has helped you to resolve or release. And just consider how this might benefit your students. Allow them to bring parts of themselves to class or to their awareness. I just want to offer a few more thoughts before we open it up for questions. I know we started a little late, so I'm going to maybe run a little late. So there are just a couple of cautions that we're not going to have time to explore, but I want to name as part of the challenges with metta. So, you know, sometimes metta can become a way to bypass suffering. 
whether it's ours or the suffering of others, you know, we can have kind of like this um, very uh, frozen expression of kindness that's actually a walling off and not in the sense of healthy boundaries, but, you know, with kind of a frozen smile that is actually trying to keep things away from us. Like, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, <laughs> may you be safe. Um, and behind the scenes, we, you know, we're trying to like actually create um, a distance because we, we don't want to come close or see. And there's, you know, it, it, there's sort of a titration that we have to do or um, to understand uh, how close we need to get to things. But there isn't an intimacy involved with metta. And, and so if we are um, just using metta as a way to kind of uh, keep things away from us again not because we're being boundary but because we actually don't want to open to it it's really important to remember that this quality of metta is always connected to mindfulness that mindfulness is that clear bright light that um, can shine into the corners and shadows so that the warmth of metta can touch what's hidden or what's frozen or what's uncomfortable and that this um combination of metta and mindfulness it brings us into the territory of what's unconscious and you know in this theme of no part left out uh, yes we can explore the parts of ourselves that have been maybe left out but we're still aware of them right but all of us have parts of ourselves that have been left out to the point where we're not even conscious of them and often those are the parts we're not so happy to see once we do see them you know, this is often called the shadow. Um, there are other names for it, but it's the territory of all of this unconscious material. And this includes our unconscious biases, including unconscious racism and, you know, unconscious uh, uh, conditioning around sexual orientation or gender identity. And it can, can really lead to harm and violence in the world, and it can lead to harm in our communities as well. And this is not only relevant to the Americans or the North Americans in this group, that these uh, racial and caste and other hierarchies exist everywhere, that colorism has touched every part of the planet, and these forms of uh, domination and oppression exist um, all over the world. And so these unconscious parts of ourselves are conditioned and patterned by the culture around us, and they can also really go unseen and unknown. And these parts need our care too. You know, we don't have to like them. We're not trying to grow them, but they need our care and attention um, to be seen and to be released. And I like this saying, I don't know where it comes from, but these parts are not our fault, but they are our responsibility. So we're not going to have time to go into an exploration of this now. And I know you'll be doing work on this over the next two years, but for now, I just wanna emphasize that this is part of our metta practice too, to bring uh, this aware, loving attention to what is unconscious. And I just want to emphasize, if you remember nothing else about this, to remember that unconscious biases are unconscious. So that means that you don't know you have these things. 
And so when they are made apparent to you, you know, through this work or other work that you do, to remember to bring awareness and kindness to them, to remember to bring you know, this quality of, of curiosity and care, that they need the light and warmth of mindfulness and metta too. So I want to end um, with just reading this poem one more time because it's so simple and so beautiful. And for each of you to know that you have this uh, full moon, maybe in tomorrow's dawn even. Watching the moon at dawn, solitary mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. So thank you. I think we have time for questions now, Christy. Yes, thank you. That was beautiful. So much wisdom and richness in there. Um, I want to thank everybody for all of your questions. And we're going to start with one that comes from Ruth Phillips, who asks, how do you see the coexistence of meta and cancel culture? Because I'm feeling very confused. Yeah, start with the easy questions, Ruth. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it's uh, this is a complex conversation that I'm I'm not sure we can really get into because we would first have to define what you mean by cancel culture, and that is um, just a loaded phrase. Uh, people use it to refer to so many different things. Um, you know, on one end, there's just accountability, <laughs> people being held accountable for things they've said or done. And um, there may be being consequences for those. On the other end, um, there is, you know, a lot of activity that is uh, quite confused. I can understand why you're confused, Ruth, um, and, and quite complex. And so, you uh, this is why metta starts with ourselves. You know, if we're experiencing the effects of that, you know, if we're being held accountable and, and feel like there are um, personal attacks involved in it or, um, you know, vendettas or uh, inconsistencies or even, um, you know, falsehoods, then there's a lot of care and kindness that we need to bring to ourselves. If we're witnessing that happening to others and confused by that as well, we can, can bring a care and kindness. You know, part of metta for me, I was reflecting before we started, you know, what I've sort of left out of this um, talk or conversation is just self-care, just the the quality of attention I need to bring and what I need Um and what the, those needs might require me to, to do. And recently for me, that has meant really being very, very bounded around social media and news intake and uh, understanding the difference between being informed and being inundated. You know, how many um, things do I need to take in? You know, how many memes, how many articles? And so there this is true around sort of the cancel culture conversation as well. Like how many of these conversations do I need to pay attention to? Is it helping me in any way? 
to, to understand more? Or is it just drawing me into uh, a lot of confusion and, and really often just other people's drama? So I don't know if that um, really answers the question of cancel culture, but it kind of maybe starts the territory of thinking about care in relationship to that. We had a few questions asking along the lines of Trish Garrigan's question. Can you speak to the difference between meta and loving kindness? Yeah, you know, I, I only use deliberately only use the loving kindness a couple of times. Um, so, you know, th these teachings come from um, particular languages, primarily Pali in the case of uh, metta and uh, sati as translated as mindfulness. And a lot of the translations we got are from the Victorian era. And that, you know, has benefits and challenges. So loving kindness, kind of like equanimity, or is, is this clunky phrases that we maybe have never heard or words we've never used before we came to these practices. And so we don't have a lot of context for them. They don't, they might not resonate. And so I really encourage you to find the phrases or words or things that, um, help you embody the practice. And this is where practice becomes really important because we have to really feel what these teachings are talking about in order then to express them. They're not, this isn't an intellectual process of, you know, a cognitive way of understanding these teachings. It's really an embodied experience. So for me, metta, um, loving kindness is like, yeah, it kind of gets to it, but Again, you know, I've kind of gotten used to that phrase over the years, but metta is the heart that cares. That's what really in my body resonates. You know, it's, it, it is this foundation. If I care, if I can cultivate this quality of caring, then I bring an awareness that can respond with love, that can respond with compassion, can respond with joy or with equanimity. But I need to cultivate this quality of care. If loving kindness... Uh, um, you know, articulates or uh, embodies that for you, then, then I would say use it, but really uh, learn what that means for you in your own practice. Alexis asks, uh, to let love in, you have to recognize it first. And how do you find or recognize the love that's there in order to let it in when you don't feel it? Um, so Alexis, it sounds like you're talking about external love. Um, that's the way I, I experienced your question. Um, and, you know, again, I would really start with self. There is uh, an order to the metta practice. I'm not sure if you've gotten to that in your unit yet, but in the classical phrases that are offered or the classical traditional, let's say, practice, um, the metta practice starts with self. So we talk about, you know, offering metta and we often think, and many of us, depending on our conditioning, and that can be gender conditioning or cultural conditioning, we think that care is about other people. Um, and so we're, we're sort of talking about love externally, but actually metta practice starts with metta for self. So we begin um, with offering this for ourselves. 
And that can be the most uncomfortable practice for many of us. So the invitation, like the one that I offered to look at, you know, what parts we leave out is really um, what's right here. And so rather than seeking love externally, we begin with ourselves because that can often be the most difficult. And if we can't feel it or recognize it, you know, there are um, invitations to imagine, uh, you know, a pet who gives that to us or the most um, kind of easy access we have to love that might be the, you know, one friend or one memory, even if that's difficult for us. But if, if we start to experience that internally, uh, it makes it easier for us to recognize that externally. And sometimes for some of us, excuse me, I live in New York city. Um, (laughs) if we, um, if, if we can't, uh, connect to that on a, uh, human level, it's sometimes through nature, you know, we can, uh, feel the love of earth. You can feel the love of the sun. You can feel the love of nature and, and it's practice. You know, it's not maybe readily, easily, immediately available to us, but just like with cultivating our awareness and attention, it really grows over time. And as the teachings say, what we pay attention to grows. You know, as you were explaining that and um, talking about the way that you were reading the question, I wanted to add a a different experience on to that, like the way I was perceiving some of that question. Oh yeah. It's because it's happened to me where I feel like I know there's love in there, but it's almost like it's in this locked box within me and hard to access, Mm. you know? And Mm. how can I, how can I get to it? And I almost feel like the practices of being in nature and feeling the love is, is kind of helping me get there, but I, I, the way that the, what that question inspired in me was how can I tap that reservoir that I know is coursing in there or existing somewhere within me and how can uh, this practice of metta maybe help me or, or any practice help me unlock that box or tap that reservoir. Mm, that's really helpful, Christy. Thank you for saying that. Cause um, you know, I think uh, there's a certain amount of, we don't really talk about faith very much, especially in sort of these modern secular mindfulness spaces, but it's such an important part of this, this, you know, we could call it trust if people are uncomfortable with the word faith, but there is um, a trust that we develop over time that requires patience and energy and determination and all the other paramis or perfections that we Mm -hmm. practice. And um, I really experience it as often um, those things don't seem accessible just because we don't, we're fatigued like to put it bluntly, you know, we're really, because they're, they're, it's the most natural experience, actually. 
this quality of care, right? And then in response to the world, we feel compassion, we feel joy, we feel like love can sometimes feel like a big word because we attach so much to it, but just even this quality of care, but it takes some time, you know, it takes carving out the space and not the the pressure and rushing of our practice that we have to like kind of check off the schedule, but really the ease and release of giving ourselves some care and attention. And that when we can give ourselves that, you know, whether it's lying in a field and feeling the sun on our, our, our body for, for 10 minutes or taking a hike or, um, you know, taking some time to catch up with a friend and really have that time to, to really connect, um, that it, it really uh, requires us to step away from the demands and the, the busyness of our lives when you were just talking about that lock box, I was like, oh, it's like waiting to be open. It's full of treasures, but we need to kind of take the time to like go into grandma's attic, as you were talking about before, <laughs> like locate the box and, like, you know, dust it off, get the key out, open it up and like really revel in the treasures that are there. Mm. Oh, thank you for that. That was rich. Um, we have, as has been the whole presentation in response to these questions. Um, we are just past the hour, but I know you mentioned being available to go a little bit further. Can we do one more question? Yeah, let's do and, it. Thank you. Okay. With apologies to all the great many questions we didn't get to. This one comes from Anush Mirabegian. Mirabegian. I apologize if I didn't get that right. Um, my question deals with grief. After following you and reading your book, Sebene, you have certainly gone through a lot of difficult times and I took away how gracefully you dealt with many difficulties. I've been dealing with my own grief and it is primarily ambiguous grief right now. I'm able to resource and really this is where I can see my own practice start to support me. How can we translate that to students, especially new students who may be coming to us with this deep sense of loss? Mm. Oh, I really appreciate that question, Anish. Thank you for asking that because it's it's something, you know, when you write a book, you have to leave stuff out. And one of the things that I left out is a, a bigger exploration of grief. And uh, it's something that um, I would like to explore more and it's really apparent to me that um, as a modern culture, you know, a lot of modernity has disconnected us from rituals for dealing with grief and that we're a culture that is kind of soaked in grief. And I mean this as a modernity, like this isn't just about like America culture, but really um, any places that are disconnected from rituals of mourning. And there's a difference between grief and mourning because um, mourning, the rituals of releasing grief uh, really help us to move through whatever losses we may experience in life. Like grief is so natural and it's a process that we can move through, but we need those rituals of mourning and we don't have them. We don't really have them in contemporary culture and modern culture. 
And I really witnessed this when my mom died that I was so uh, fortunate to have uh, rituals of mourning that were connected to traditional Ethiopian culture. And because of my aunties and relatives, you know, I was able to go into spaces and to processes that were so powerful and so helpful for moving grief. So we have a culture of wailing in Ethiopia and, you know, like many places around the world, there's a lot of wailing that happens when someone dies. You can actually pay people and many places in the world, you can actually, you know, rent mourners, like <laughs> rent wailers. We didn't need to do that because we had family around, but even my, my mom's best friend lives in the Bronx. And for the year after my mom died, whenever I went to visit her, she would open the door and immediately start wailing. And there's like a performative quality to it, right? It's 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 something that you do as an offering for others. And it helped me go you know, each time, just like go into the crying and release. And then we would sit around and talk and laugh and tell funny stories about my mom. And, and it was this really beautiful process that I uh, was gifted by my culture. And I witnessed and have witnessed other people who've experienced great loss and not have these processes, like not have these rituals of mourning. And I really encourage us to find our own ways, you know, find our own rituals, create new rituals, create new processes for moving grief through, you know, recognizing grief and loss is natural and finding ways for, for these um, to be expressed and released because they're not meant to be held on to forever. It's not that I don't miss my mom and you know sometimes experience sort of natural feelings of grief and loss of having lost someone so important, but I'm not stuck in that grief, right? Because I've, I've had the processes. Thank you so much, Sabine. That has just been a wonderful, hour with you. Information rich. <laughs> uh, thank you, Christy. And thank you everyone for, for coming and joining. And uh, yeah, I really enjoyed this time. Mm -hmm. Everyone, this concludes the live session of our mindfulness meditation teacher certification program hour. Our deep gratitude once again goes to Sebene for this wonderful teaching. And I want to thank you so much to all of you who were able to join us live. We appreciate your participation and your questions. Next month, we're going to be joined by Jack Cornfield for the live session on May 18th. For Sounds True, I'm Christy Peoples thanking you once again for being with us. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world. <laughs>